In Mark chapter 5, where the story about Jesus and the demoniac, and, and what strikes me as you look at the story is every one of us has problems. Problems of one size and one shape or another. And if you look around the world, the industry about self-help and how to deal with your problems, how to deal with the things that all of us face, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. And there's so many books and so many philosophies and so many ideas, so many different sub-branches of ideas in each different department of life to try and help us and deal with and solve and resolve the problems that we face. And fundamentally, what we have to get a hold of is the fact that our greatest problem is God. That's our greatest problem. He is our greatest problem. You're thinking, that's a strange thing to say in a church. Our problem is that God is infinitely good. You say, I still don't see the problem. Well, the problem is that we are not infinitely good. We are, in fact, very much bad. We're not as bad as we can be, but we are as bad off as we can be. We're separated from God. And in the stories, we're going to look at it. We're going to see how the different people in the world tried to resolve this man's problems. They tried to chain him up. They tried to subdue him. They tried all kinds of things to resolve what was fundamentally a spiritual problem between him and God. He was in bondage. In sin in some senses, but certainly in bondage to demons. And it required something far greater than their chains and their counseling, their philosophies. Anything this world can offer as a solution to the problem, it doesn't meet the task. It simply cannot resolve the biggest issue we face. It required the omnipotent power of the living God to resolve that problem. To give you some context, chapter 4, verses 35 to 41, we see there the power of Jesus over the storm, over the wind and the weather and the waves. In chapter four, or 5, verses 1 through 20, we have the power of Jesus over darkness, over the forces of darkness. And then in chapter 5, verses 21 to 43, we have the power of Jesus over death and disease and sickness. And we're going to look at the middle section, the power of Jesus over darkness. Now, I want to give you a simple outline. If you can remember three words, you can remember the outline. Here they are. Great bondage, so the word's bondage, a great bondage. The second word is power, a great power. And the third word is simply this, freedom, a great freedom. So bondage, power, and freedom. That's a simple outline we're going to use this morning to work our way through the passage. And I want you to see, first of all, the great bondage. But let's read. I'm going to read a couple of different passages. So take your Bibles. We'll read from Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Then we're going to flip to a couple of epistles and come back to Mark. So beginning at verse 1 of chapter 5 of the book of Mark, it says this. They came to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gerasenes. And when he had got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him any more, even with a chain. Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains, and gashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up. And bowed down before him, or he worshipped before him, and shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? 
And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. And the demons implored him, saying, Send us into the swine that we may enter them. And Jesus gave them permission, and coming out of the unclean spirits, they entered, sorry, and coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Their herdsmen ran away and reported in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind, and the people, sorry, and the very man who had, been, who had had the legion, and they became frightened." Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. And they began to implore him to leave their region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. And he did not let him, but he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. Take your Bibles then and flip over to the book of Ephesians just for a few minutes, or a few seconds even. Ephesians chapter 2. And we'll read the first 10 verses there. In Ephesians chapter 2, in the first 10 verses, it says this. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God... Being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus." For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And then just two verses in the book of Colossians. So a couple books over the book of Colossians in chapter 1, and we'll read just verses number 13 and 14. It says this, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And that verse is what I'm using as kind of the structure, the outline to look at the story of Jesus and the demoniac. We were once in the domain of darkness and he has delivered us out by great power and brought us into the kingdom of his great son. So the, the, the outline is simply that, a great bondage, a great power, and a great freedom. The man whose life we have before us, he was a demon-possessed man. 
And his life gives us a perfect illustration, a perfect example in an extreme fashion of what it means, what it's like to live apart from Christ. What will your life will be like if you carry on in your sinful life and all the way to the end, everything this man is experiencing will be your experience. And he shows us in the, the terrible state that he's in what it is to be apart from Christ, to be buried and captured, in a sense, in the domain of darkness. Now, some of you might immediately say, are you telling us that all unbelievers are possessed by demons? And I'm going to tell you, no, not all believers, all, sorry, not all unbelievers are possessed by demons, but all unbelievers are living in agreement with the devil and demons. If you say, how do you get to that? Take a look at Ephesians chapter 2 again, those verses. He says this, notice carefully, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. The the words according to mean in agreement with. So in agreement with the course of this world, comma, according to or in agreement with the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Who is that speaking of? Speaking of the devil. Okay, speaking of demonology. And you say, how is it that we can be walking and living as unbelievers in agreement with demons and the forces of darkness? And the reality is that demons and devils are living constantly in rebellion and disobedience to God. So they are doing exactly what an unbeliever is doing. An unbeliever lives constantly in a sinful state in which his state is in rebellion and disobedience against God. All of us have gone our own way. We've all chosen to rule and reign our own lives, make our own decisions, and every single thing that we do reflects a sinful intention. This is a tough one to get your head around, especially if you're not used to the idea of the total depravity of man. But that's exactly what we are as unbelievers. We are living in disobedience and rebellion against God. That's our state. So when he says in Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, you can see this man's life, and we'll unpack a little bit in a minute, of what it is exactly that he was just like that. He shows us in an extreme example of what it means to live, live in quotation marks, separated and cut off from God, a live a life apart from God. Not all unbelievers are possessed by dev- demons or devils, but all unbelievers are living in agreement with the devil. All unbelievers are in the domain of darkness. Okay, I'm going to read again in case you missed it. Look at Colossians chapter 1 again. What does he say? He says, for he, being God, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Some of you may have bought into the idea, it's quite common, that there is evil, there is good, and there is middle sort of neutral. The Bible, nowhere from Genesis to Maps, makes that statement anywhere. There are only two ways given by which men live. We live according to God. We live the way of righteousness or we live in the way of wickedness. It's one or the other. There is no middle, neutral, sort of half good, sort of bad, sort of eh, floating along. No, not in the Bible. And that's the way we are. We are like this man, all of us. And I want to show you by unpacking the way he's living exactly how that works. So notice back in Mark chapter 5, I want to go through again. I'm going to read and I'm going to sort of unpack and explore how the text works. 
It gives a statement of him coming out of the, the water, out of the sea, into the country of the Gerasenes. By the way, the Gerasenes is a, a Gentile land. You say, how do you know that? Well, for one thing, they kept pigs as food and animals to be eaten. So we know they certainly weren't Jews. We also know from history, looking at the map and area, that they were Gentile people. It's one of the few times in the New Testament describes Jesus going apart from the Jews to reach out to the Gentiles with the good news of the gospel. Anybody think of the other occasion where Jesus does that? Samaritan. Yeah, Samaritan woman. And the, Right at the beginning of his ministry, okay? So you've got the Samaritan woman and this man from the Gerasenes, and they're both Gentiles, and he both takes very special time and makes a special trip out of his way, in this case across the sea, in the case of the Samaritan woman, he goes to her, specifically he deals with one Gentile, and then he goes back to dealing with the Jewish people as a whole. So it's a Gentile place. He gets out of the boat and it says immediately in verse 2, a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And then verses 3, 4, and 5 are kind of like a step back. And he gives you, the Mark the writer gives you a description of this man's life and what he's like. And that's how we're getting this point about his life is an example of what it means to be under the power of sin and living in a domain of darkness, which is what every unbeliever lives in. Okay? There's no neutral ground. First of all, notice he's dwelling among the tombs. He's living among the dead. Now, the Bible says that we are, in our fallen state, we are dead in sins and trespasses or sins and transgressions. So what does that mean? To be dead simply means to be separated, to be cut off from something, one thing cut apart from another. When Adam and Eve sinned, the Lord said to them, the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die, right? And you think, you read the story and you go, and I was a young kid going, I don't get it. They ate the thing, they didn't die. I I couldn't figure it out until I finally figured out, you know what it means? It doesn't mean they literally, their bodies would die immediately and go into the ground. It means that they were separated from God, cut apart from God. To be dead means to be separate. This man was driven away from his home, away from society, away from people, and he was living separated in the tombs. A dead man, if you sent, if you like, living among dead bodies. We, as unbelievers, were dead in our sins and trespasses, which means that we were simply oblivious to all the glories and all the riches of Christ. Now you can say, now just a moment, I remember before I became a Christian, I heard the gospel. In fact, I sat in church for 30 years before I became a Christian, or 20 years, or however long it was. I heard the gospel, I knew it, I understood it. Yeah, but let me ask you one simple question. How much did you want it? How much was it your desire to have it? And I can remember my own experience. I came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. I remember sitting on that camp bed, and I had heard the gospel over and over and over and over again. And it wasn't until that moment when God did a work in my heart, and that which was dead was made alive... And I wanted it with all my heart. I wanted to believe. I wanted to be a part of with Jesus and have that relationship with God. When we're dead in sins and trespasses, we are oblivious to all the glories and the wonders of the living God. We have no desire and no delight for them. If you look in the book of Romans, chapter 3, you know what he says there? He says, there is no one that seeks for God. No one that desires the good things of God. And that's exactly what it means to be dead in sins and trespasses. This man is living among the tombs. He's a dead man living amongst dead corpses and dead bodies. 
the word in uh, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 that talks about they were dead, it uses the word sarks, which is a word for a corpse or a cadaver. So a rotting body is literally what it means. And we without Christ are dead in those things. We're, we're absolutely cut off from God. That's what this man's condition is. Notice also, he says there that he's unable. This is now in verse uh, verse 3, no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. And what it shows us is simply this, is that the world around us has all kinds of theories and ideas about how they can resolve man's great problems. And this demoniac, at times, he'd been able to be bound up with chains. And the chains might have lasted for a little while. And for a little while, he was subdued and he couldn't hurt himself. And he couldn't hurt anybody else. The book of Luke, describing the same scene that the man was so violent and he attacked anybody that went by. So the people of the Gerasenes were taking him and chaining him up to try and prevent him from hurting anybody else and hurting himself. And what it's showing us is that after a little while, this man was strong enough to tear those chains apart and break his shackles and run off into the mountains and cause all kinds of havoc in the people that pass by. What it shows us is this. The world's ideas, the world's philosophies, all the world's self-help stuff might help you for a little while. You might get, excuse me, you might get some peace, you might get some rest, you might get some comfort from the problem that you face, but ultimately it will not suffice. Ultimately it will not bring us that joy, that peace, that thing that we were designed to have, which is a relationship with the living God. This man was unable to be subdued and bound. All man's attempts to deal with the consequence of sin ultimately result in failure. They were temporary and never permanent. In Luke chapter 8, verses 26 to 37, same story. It says, the man was naked. And you say, what is the big deal about being him, him being naked? We had our couple study a couple weeks ago. And we started off for the first night, and we've had one night so far. And we should be having more, but we're not. We'll get there. And we're talking about the whole idea in the, in the Garden of Eden, when the man and woman are first created, they're created and are left, and they're naked and not ashamed. And we're talking, what, about it, what is it about nakedness and shame? And what is it about all that? Why is that so important? Why is it so significant in Scripture? And it works like this. Until there is sin, there is no shame. And the man and the woman living in the garden, enjoying that beautiful, sin-free, that wonderful relationship, man and the woman communing and have fellowship with each other and also with God. And there's no shame. There's no necessary for clothing. The first thing they do, they take the apple, they eat it, their eyes are open. All of a sudden they feel, oh, I'm naked. And there's immediately a sense of shame and they run out and they get the leaves and they try and sew them all together and try and make skirts and coverings for themselves. And of course, you know the story, this, the, the Lord wait just long enough for the leaves to dry out, crumple up and blow away. And they realize their efforts to cover themselves were completely inadequate. And, and the beautiful picture is that God comes and takes an animal and he kills an animal and takes the skin of that animal and he skins and takes the benefit, the blessing of an innocent victim and he wraps it around Adam and he, Eve and he covers up their nakedness. And the picture is that the shame associated with sin and guilt is covered. This man is running around the tombs and running around the mountains and he's absolutely naked and all the shame of his sinful condition is exposed to everybody that comes by. 
One of the things that shocks you, and it should shock us more, is how people are no longer have a sense of shame in the culture in which we live. It's a great problem. Shame has been put away. Shame is described as a great problem. You've got to deal with it. You can't have anybody feel ashamed about their behavior. Pardon me for saying it, but I think the whole gay agenda is driven by a drive to get rid of shame. And so, you know, we have to make it acceptable. We have to make it honorable in our society. Well, it's impossible. It's a sinful thing. Why is it that your child, kid steals a cookie, right? And you catch him at it. And what's the first thing that little guy does? I'll say guy because I was the guy that did it. What's the first thing he does? Hand goes behind his back. Why? Because he's got an itch back there? No, because he, he just wants to put the cookie behind his back because he didn't want you to worry about the cookie that's missing. No, <laughs> what it is, is he's ashamed. And he's trying to hide. He said, why did Adam and Eve run away? There was shame there. This man is naked. His, his shame is out for everybody to see. He's also, notice the internal chaos in this man's life. Look at what it says in verse 5. And listen, get the thought, get the sense of what Mark's saying. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. There's internal chaos in this poor man's life that whatever is going on in his mind and his heart, he never stops constantly screaming and shouting and he's, he's tormented. And you say, yes, he's tormented by the demons that are inside of him. Yes, you're right. But look at the society around us. Look at the self-destructive bent of our, our society. Look, uh, this is a, a kind of touchy subject. Some people have a problem with some people don't. Tattoos and all that sort of stuff. Piercings. And there's a new thing now where they take and they, they brand people. And they make artistic, quote-unquote, designs branding people all over their body. And you couldn't imagine what that would be like. You say, why is it society does that? Why is our culture driven by this self-destructive urges? And I absolutely believe it's a result of a sinful bent in man's heart to destroy himself. You know, remember the story of Elijah up on the Mount of Carmel? You know, he's got all the prophets of Baal there, 850 prophets. You call on Baal and we'll put the, uh, the sacrifice on the offering. Sorry, the... Build the altar, put the offering on top of it, and we won't have any fire. We'll ask Baal to come and light the fire, and you guys go first. And from the morning sacrifice all the way to the evening sacrifice, they're dancing and shouting, and, and I love Elijah. He's teasing them. You know, maybe Baal's asleep. Maybe he's on the bathroom or something. You know, keep shouting. And they start, what do they start doing? They take knives, and they start cutting themselves. Why? It's the drive in a sin-filled heart to self-destruct. And this man is running through the tombs, and he's filled with this demon, but he's also got a sin issue, and we'll see it a little bit later. And he is gashing and cutting himself. Listen, sin will ultimately drive us to destroy ourselves and tear ourselves apart. He's naked. He's living amongst the tombs. He's constantly screaming. There's torment in his mind. And this man... He's self-destructed. He's isolated from society. He's been driven away from all of the culture and people around him. They can't deal with him. They can't handle him. They want to get away from this. They drive him out into the tombs, and he's all there by himself. And it shows a beautiful, not beautiful, a very, actually the absolute opposite of beautiful. It's an ugly, horrific picture of man in his sinful condition, man cut off from God. 
And he's isolated from God and sin has separated him. The people of his day can do nothing to help this poor man. It requires something so much greater. And I want you to see, I wrestled with putting point two at the end or point three at the end. And I, there's a party who wants to finish with the glory of Jesus. And part of me says, we could tell the story the way it unfolds. It kind of works better. And there's a point at the end. But there's a part of me which wants to stop and just focus on Jesus and see all the glories of Christ in the passage. Listen, just a little side note. As you're reading through your Bible day by day and your daily reading patterns to get through the Bible and however long you're doing it, whether it's 24 days or it's, it's a year or six months, whatever it is, one of the things we have to do is to discipline ourselves to see the glory of Christ in the text that's in front of us. And as you read, look to see how Christ is glorified. Look to see how Christ is lifted up and exalted. And it's there. It's all there. It just takes the discipline to work it through it and figure out what it is. And it's a beautiful habit to get involved in because you, all of a sudden you see Christ in all of the scriptures. And I want us to stop because what stopped this man, if you look at verse number uh, two, it says, when he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs, an unclean spirit, met him, comma, that thought is interrupted all the way down to verse number six and says, seeing Jesus, he ran up and worshiped him. So in a sense, what I want us to do right now is to stop and just step back a bit from the text, if you like. I want us to see all the glories of Christ in the passage. First of all, we see the glory of Christ as he comes to seek and save the lost. Matthew Henry had a great little way of understanding the two stories of the storm and the demoniac together. He says, like, it's a picture of what Christ has done in leaving the far side of heaven, leaving all the glories and wonders of heaven and crossing across the sea, enduring the storm and the chaos that God sends in order to come to our side and rescue and redeem the lost. It's a picture of Christ leaving heaven, enduring the cross and the wrath of God to rescue and save us who were lost sinners before him. It's a beautiful picture. Jesus came. He took time out, like I said before, like the Samaritan woman and this man here. He took time out to come and to seek and save the lost. Isn't it interesting that he says himself, I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel? And yet he leaves the ninety and nine behind for a short time. He comes across this sea... And he deals with just one man. You think, you know, Lord, you've only got a three-year ministry and you want to make you know, good, efficient use of your time. You don't want to be, you know, maybe we could send people out and maybe you could do more things. But no, Jesus stops and says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to go over there and I'm just going to find this one man. And Jesus didn't meet him by chance. It was perfectly timed as he stepped out of the boat. The demoniac would come out of the mountains and out of the tombs and they would meet face to face or maybe across a bit of a distance. So see the glory, first of all, of Jesus who came to seek and save the lost. See also, look in Mark 5 verse 19, over the page if it's in your Bible. Over the page, Mark 5 verse 19, it says this. The man has asked Jesus at the end of their time together, let me come with you and stay with you and be with you for the rest of your time. And Jesus says, no, no, you go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And that mercy statement tells us something because mercy is not offered to people who are innocent 
Mercy is offered to those who are guilty, those who have sin. Mercy is God's goodness extended to the miserable in their condition. And this man's condition before God is absolutely cut off and isolated and sinful. He is going to endure the wrath of God if he is not dealt with. And he receives God's mercy. See the glory of Jesus Christ extending mercy to the sinner. See the glory of Jesus omnipotent over the demons. Look at the story there. We're going to unpack it a bit more a bit later. But look at this. He says... In verses uh, 7 and 8, there he comes up and the demon starts shouting, What business do we have to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? And he implores him not to torment him. And he had been saying, Jesus had been saying to the man, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? And the man answered, or the, man, the, the demon answered, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he, the, the demon, began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. There's a large herd of swine feeding and so on. And then verse 12, the demon implores him saying, send us into the swine so we may enter them. And then verse 13, Jesus gave them permission. Meaning what? Meaning he's sovereign over the, all the forces of darkness. It's something that's hard for our modern Christian mind to kind of get a hold of, that the demons and the devils are on leashes and God holds the, the business end. So how do you know that? Go to the book of Job when you have a moment. Read the first two chapters of the book of Job. And what you discover there is Job, Satan comes to the Lord and he asks him about, or the Satan, sorry, the Lord reminds Satan of Job and said, if you consider my servant Job, there's no one like him and so on. And then he's released and given a little bit of leash to go out and he takes all of Job's family and business and they're all killed and there's nothing left but Job and his wife. And then the, Satan comes back and the Lord says, have you considered my servant Job? His faith is held, and this is what it says, even though you incited me against him. Meaning what? Meaning God is still sovereignly in control. God holds the leash on the demons and the devils. He does not let them loose. And this man was on a leash held by God, and even his dwelling in that demoniac was on a leash held by God. And the demoniac had to get permission to leave and go into the swine. God holds the leash Praise God that he does not let go. Does not give the demons and the devil complete, utter freedom. They don't have it. God is in control. And this man, and this is the glory of Jesus here, he is omnipotent over all of those evil forces. He is sovereign over them. Notice also the glory of Jesus restoring and regenerating this man. He meets, they have this confrontation, and we're going to unpack in a minute all of what it means, but down a bit lower... He talks about how he came, and this man is now restored. He's clothed. He's in his right mind. He's sitting at the feet of Jesus, and everything's been put back together, and this man has been reunited in his relationship to God. That's the glory of Jesus, restoring and regenerating us as sinners into a relationship with God. Listen, you have a relationship with the living God not because you did something. You have a relationship with the living God because God sovereignly called you and drew you to himself. He worked in you. Paul says in Philippians 2, he worked in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. What does that mean? That means he put the desire in there. That moment I was in that bed as a little kid in camp and I wanted the gospel. I wanted Christ. Why? Because I sucked up all of the desire and I just decided, you know what? I'm going to go for it. You say, well, in some senses, yes. 
But behind that, God is working in my heart and my spirit to put the both the will and the doing there. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do. The desire you have is because God put it there. Anyway, moving on. See the glory of Jesus restoring and regenerating this man. See the glory of Jesus graciously sending this man to testify of God's work. That's the glory of God, isn't it? He didn't just say, okay, well, I've done all the work here. I'm just going to let you mill around and, and do your thing. And then day to come, I'll come back and pick you up and we'll go home again. And that's it. No, it's God's glory in grace. He sent us out into this world to preach the gospel, to tell others about Christ. That's the glory of God. In right this passage, him telling this man to go back to your home and to your family and to tell those in your village, your community, of what great things God has done for you. Let's zoom in again. I want you to see how this man is delivered. I want you to notice it says in verse number 6 and 7 there, seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and worshipped or bowed down before him. I touched on it a minute ago, but I want you to get a hold of how this works. It is God working in us both to will and to do. Take your Bibles and flip over to the book of John just for a second, the book of John in chapter 6. John 6 and verse number 44. Jesus is speaking to the Jews again. He says this in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. What does he mean by the word draw? Now you can say it's kind of like wooing, beckoning. Well, that's one way. Let me give you another way how the verses translate. In the book of Acts chapter 16 and verse 19 it says, And they seized Paul and they dragged him into the marketplace. Draw and drag, same word. It's a compulsion. So why did this man who saw Jesus run up and bow down before him? The Bible tells us that no one seeks for God. So how is it possible that he, this man with a demoniac, the the demons inside of him, run up to God? It's because God sovereignly worked in that man and he put the will in there, the desire to come to Jesus and be set free from his demons. And the man literally ran because he wanted to. But there's no way for him to want to unless God does that work in him ahead of time and changes his inclination, his desire, and he comes to Christ to be saved. He runs up, he bows down, he worships. I said before, none of us seeks for God. No one does good, not even one. It's God's working in us to change that heart, to change that desire, to put the compulsion inside of us to bring us to Christ. And the man draws him to himself, and then Jesus deals with the demons. Now, you see there, he he asks him a couple of things. He says, what is your name? You know, nowhere else in the Bible that I can find anyway that Jesus asks a demon what its name is. What does it matter what the demon's name is? is. And the man, the demon speaking through him, answers, my name is Legion. You say, why would he do that? Notice it says in verse number 14, the herdsmen ran away and reported in the city in their country, and the people came to see what it was that happened. Why did Jesus ask him his name? Because he says, we are, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, for those of you who use the Roman system, or the Readers using Roman system, a legion in Roman times was anything from six to 12,000 men. 
That's a lot of demons sitting inside this poor man. And Jesus is saying, listen, tell us who you are. Why? So that he knew? No, so that all those around him listening and watching would see the greatness of this man's problem. And Jesus, in his sovereign power over the demons, shows his omnipotent power to everybody around him to deal with the problem. And he says, look. There's thousands in me, and then Jesus gives them permission, and they're cast out, and the demons are put out of the man and into the swine. They run down the hill. Now, if we have more time, I'd love to go look at the herdsmen, the story about the Gerasenes, but I'm going to leave that alone and move on. I want us to see, last of all, we look first of all at the bondage and the power of God to do this. I want us to see the great freedom. Look at what it says down in verses number 15, 16 to the end there. He says, they came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed in his right man, and the very man who had the legion, and they became frightened. And those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine, and they began to implore him to leave their region. There's a number of things about God's work in this man that changed this man radically. He was totally different. When they ran away to tell what was going on, he would have been standing there naked still. But when they come back, what do they find? They find that Christ had set this man free, absolutely free from sin and the demons that were in him. Christ dealt with the man's sin. We saw in verse 19 that God had mercy on him. That's mercy extended towards guilty people. This man had a sin issue. Even though he had the demons, yes, of course, but he also had a sin issue and God dealt with that. If Christ has set you free, the Bible says, you are free indeed. Right? Now, the herdsmen ran to others, and they come back to see, and this is what they find. There's new life in this man. He's totally, totally and radically changed. There's new life in him. There's no longer the shame of sin. There's no longer the guilt there. Listen to what it says. He was sitting down. Now, this poor man for those months before, perhaps even years before, had been running around the mountains naked and gashing himself and cutting himself. There's nothing but turmoil and unrest and chaos in this man's life. And now, for the first time, they come back, and what do they find? He's sitting down. I love the fact that in church, well, most of us get to sit through most of the service, right? It's a beautiful picture, and you think, it's just a chair, man. What's the big deal? Churches have chairs everywhere we go. Yeah, it is. Go back to the Old Testament. Read the stories of the tabernacle and temple. Do you realize that in this room there are like a hundred odd chairs sitting out in front of me? In the tabernacle and temple, how many chairs are there? One. One. It's called the mercy seat on top of the Ark of Covenant. Only God in all the Old Testament system is able to sit down. But all of us come into this room and we sit down together and we worship together. You say, What's the big deal with sitting? What it's showing us is that the work is finished. And this man is sitting at the feet of Jesus. It's like Mary and Martha, you know? They're in the house, and one of them is running around busy cooking and cleaning and serving and and doing all that. My mother-in-law completely. That's exactly what she'd be doing, running around, making dinner, doing all stuff. And everybody else, Mary, is just sitting there. And Jesus says, she has chosen the better thing and it won't be taken away from her. She's sitting and enjoying the presence of Jesus. All of us are sitting, resting in the finished work of Christ. There is fellowship restored. There's now peace. you imagine that poor guy? 
He's been running and cutting and just nonstop turmoil. And God does a work in his life. And all of a sudden, he knows incredible peace. Notice, second of all, he says he was clothed. We talked before about nakedness. One of the great pictures, one of the great stories of the New Testament Gospels is Jesus and the story about the prodigal son. And the prodigal son comes back to his father and you can see him almost walking down the road and his clothes are all torn and he's got nothing left of his money and his feet are bare and he's lost his ring and his hair's long and messy and his beard's grown and he's just a wreck. And this, the father sees him coming a long way off and he jumps off the front porch of the house and he runs across the fields to meet his son and he calls the servants as he's coming, come this way, quick, quick. And he's, the son tries to talk to his dad. Dad, I've sinned against you and against heaven. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father says, quickly. He's not even hardly listening to the, the kid. He says, quick, bring a robe. They take that robe and they wrap the robe around the, soul, the shoulders of that young man. That's one of the neatest pictures in scripture. You know why? It shows us that God has dealt with our shame. Can you imagine Adam and Eve? You, know, you ever been caught out naked? You don't have to answer that question if you don't want to. It's all right. I have never. People had dreams, though, right? Well, you, you dream that you're, yeah, horrible. Pardon me for bringing this up at the pulpit. But you have that immediate sense of, oh, no, and you just, you, you, ooh, you want to hide. Can you imagine Adam and Eve standing before the living God in their sin? Their shame is exposed for the holy of holy of holies of God to see. And God takes an animal and kills an animal and takes that skin and he wraps it around the, the man and his wife. And Jesus, in the story of the particle son, the father takes a robe and he wraps it around the shoulders of his returning son. And I don't know what Jesus did, but in my mind's eye, I can almost see him taking that, you know, that blue sash he's always pictured wearing, unwinding it and reaching out with his arms and swinging it around the, man, the shoulders of the man and clothing him and covering him up. And the man stops, and he sits down. He's got the clothing wrapped around him. And you know what? Jesus and this man begin to talk. The Bible says he was in his right mind. Everything about our thinking, everything about the way we, our emotions, our actions, our drives, they're all distorted and ruined because of sin. And for the first time in his life, his, his thoughts are clear. The screaming, whatever's tormenting his brain, is gone away. And now he has a relationship and he has a conversation with Jesus. And I can see them talking back and forth and sharing one with the other. And you know one of the greatest thrills about a Christian is when you have that reconciliation with God, you begin to talk again. And you hear his voice, and you listen to hear what he has to say. And you can begin to speak in prayer, and all of a sudden, the confidence, the reassurance that we are speaking with the living God, that relationship has been restored. This man is sitting here, he's clothed in his, in his right mind. All of a sudden, his desires and emotions and drives are all right again. You know how you know that? What happens at the end of the story? He follows Jesus down to the boat. If you, do little, if you like to do word studies in your Bible, you like making notes of similar words, notice the word implore in the text. It says in verse 7, I implore you by God, do not torment me. It says in verse number 10, the, the demon implored him earnestly not to send him out. It says uh, also a little further down, verse 17, he began, they, the herdsmen, the city folk, began to implore Jesus to leave their region. And this man says he was imploring him. It means he was pleading with him. He was begging him, let me go with you. 
Let me come with you wherever it is you go. Let me walk with you and follow you. Let me stand beside you and see all the rest of your glories and what you're going to do. The biggest change in this man's life was all of a sudden now he had new desires and new drives. He wanted to be with Jesus. He wanted to please the Lord in all the rest of his life. He wanted to accompany him everywhere he went. And I think even in that man's mind, he may have gone all the way to the cross if that had been what it took. We don't know that. But he had a desire to be with Jesus. And we can sit here and we can listen to story after story after story about the Bible and the demoniac and all that and all the power of God and all the things that are going on in the Scriptures. But you know what? We have to bring the the ship down. We have to land the plane and drive it home, the point for each of us. And you say, what's the point for us in this story? What's the message for Casey Bible Church on this morning from this story? And I think it's this. We need to take a test. You say, I just finished school for the semester. I don't want to take any more tests. This is a far more important test. How do you know that you've been set free? I tell stories about men who were chained up with uh, the ball and chain thing when they're in prison. And they spend 20 years chained to a ball and chain. And they learn to walk with a particular gait of like dragging their foot because the weight of the chain behind them. And you set those men free and they walk out the gates of that prison. And as they walk along, their foot has that same dragging gait. In some cases, it takes them years to get over that because it's so subconscious that just, it's just ingrained in them that they're dragging that weight of that chain and that ball around behind them. And for years, it takes a while to get used to walking normally. And for some of us, we're chained up and we're not been, we've been set free, but we're still walking as if we're dragging the weight around behind us. And my question to you this morning is, do you know... Do you, are you sure that you have been set free? And I want to give you a test so that you can determine for yourself if, in fact, you have been set free. And let me ask you, the first question is this. That man, in his former life, he was living amongst the tombs. He was dwelling with the dead. Where are your life? Where are you spending your life? Where are you spending your time? Is it soaked up in the actions and the motives and the lifestyle of those who are still spiritually dead. Saddest thing in this world is to see a Christian trying to be at home, trying to be happy amongst those who are living an unbelieving, ungodly, wicked lifestyle. You know how I know that? I tried. You'll never be happy. You'll never know peace if that's what you are. But let me ask you, are you still living amongst the dead? This man went from uh, screaming and chaos and turmoil in his mind to sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind. There was a peace that he had. So let me ask you this morning, take the test. Do you have peace in your heart before God? Do you? Are you still enduring the turmoil and the torment Because of sin that's raging on. Now, I know there is still the old nature at war with the new nature. We get that. We've been through that before. But right now, you will know in your own heart, as we're talking and you're listening to what I'm saying, the Spirit of God will bear testimony in your heart. Do you have peace or not? You covered up. Are you still carrying around the shame of the guilt of sin in your life? This man was sitting down, he was clothed, and he was in his right mind. 
Let me ask you the one final question. This is the biggest question of all. This man was in his right mind. He had a new desire and a new drive in life. And his new desire and his new drive was to please the Lord in everything. Let me ask you this. What drives what you determine to do in life? What is your, what is your primary motive for everything you do? Well, I want to make sure the name of Nelson gets widely known, so I'll do this in such a way that everybody hears about it. That's a pretty convicting question, by the way. What drives you? I want to show you the life of one other man before we close. If you ever get a a birthday card or an anniversary card or a, a card of some form, shape, or kind of, you'll probably see my signature and scroll below it, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And verse 9. I want to read it for you. 2 Corinthians 5, 9, it says this. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, our drive, our motive, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. What drives what you do? Make money? That's a good drive. That's a bad drive at the same time. To please other people? We all do that, don't we? To please mom and dad, to please workmates, to please our boss, to please our spouse. There's a drive to please all kinds of people. But when it comes right down to it, is our lives being lived to please the Lord? This man, at the end of the story, all he wanted to do was be with Jesus and go with him. And Jesus said, no, you stay here and go and witness to your friends. And Jesus got, excuse me, Sorry. Got back in the boat with the disciples, went back across the sea and left him all by himself. What, he, what could he have done? He could have, you know, well, go back to Decapolis and get a job and just go back to life. I mean, I'm free of the demons. But you know what he did? He went out and he began to broadcast it all over the place. I find it very interesting that Jesus tells all the demoniacs amongst the Jewish areas, shh, don't say anything. This one, he says, you go and tell everybody. And this man went and he told the story everywhere he went. He told all the great things that the Lord had done for him. You know why he was doing that? Because he was in his right mind. Because he had the desire and the motive, the ambition to live a life that was pleasing to God, whether God could see him or not. And it says, when Paul said, he said, listen, whether we're home or absent. In other words, when I'm in by myself in my closet, my desire is to please the Lord. When I'm out in the, <clears throat> excuse me, when I'm out in the fields, I'm out in the cities walking around. My desire is to please the Lord. When I'm on my workshop, my desire is to please the Lord. When I'm driving my car, my desire is to please the Lord. Wherever you go, that's got to be your desire. That shows that the right mind is there. So let me ask you the hardest question of all: What drives what you do? Do you live with a constant desire to be pleasing to him in the things that you watch, the stuff you go do, the stuff you see, how you live your business life, how many corners you're willing to cut, how you live your married life, the way you treat your wife and your kids, your husband and the kids? Is there a desire in everything you do to please him? That's what this man would drove him along. He wanted to be with Christ. He wanted to witness for Christ. And he was obedient to everything God gave him to do. There was a great bondage. I don't think if you go from Genesis to Maps, you're going to find another man in all of the scriptures that's like this man as far as his bondage, as far as the things that chained him up. 
You say he was a demoniac. He had 2,000 or 10,000 or 6,000, whatever it was, demons. Yes, but he's also a picture for all of us of what it means to live life apart from Christ. And this man came and he encountered the omnipotent power of the living God to set him free. And you and I, coming by faith, in faith and repentance to Christ, experience the omnipotent, sovereign power of the living God to set us free from sin and death. This man had a desire above all else to be with Jesus, and he lived out that desire to please the Lord by going out and sharing with anybody that would listen what great things the Lord has done for him. The point of the story is the great power of God to set him free. The outflow of the story is the way he lived his life on the other side of that. How are you living your life? Is that your drive? To please the Lord? You know, my own life, I can tell you that there have been some changes in the last six, eight months, maybe more. And God has done a work in my life in things that I knew I needed to change. And I can say, and I don't, I'm not boasting because I fail more often than I get it right. But that desire to please the Lord is there. We sat out last night, and, and my lovely niece, Courtney, who's here now, was there. And, and it was getting late, and the guys wanted to watch a movie. I wanted to watch a movie, so I thought, we'll put something funny on. We put a movie on. And it wasn't long before I was going, oh, didn't need to hear that. Oh, oh. At one point, I was put my hand up so I couldn't see it. And finally, I said, John, just, let's just turn it off. I don't want to see it anymore. And I got into bed, and, and I'm laying there thinking, oh, man, how, how, how what, what happened there? It wasn't grossly wrong, but it was just stuff that you didn't need to see. And I lay there, and I was a bit upset with myself for a while. How to let that happen? And I suddenly realized something. Ten years ago, or even five years ago, I would have gone, eh, whatever, and just watched it. And I realized all of a sudden that even slow as I was to react, there was a desire there that says, no. I'm not going to watch this. No, I'm going to turn it off. I'm going to walk away. And it was almost a natural reaction, just a revulsion. I don't want to see it. And you know what? That ought to be what happens in our lives, all of us. I'm not the best example. I, make it, I do it wrong. I want to get it right. But a desire and a drive to please the Lord, a desire and a drive to live a life that is acceptable to him, realizing that we have been set free. And living in that freedom, enjoying it, living with a desire to please God above and beyond everything else. Does that make sense? All right. Would you stand with me when we close in prayer? I think we have one more song. Loving Father, we give you thanks again this morning for the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, I, I so wanted to end on that middle point. Just holding up the glories of Jesus. The glory of the one who left the the glories of heaven to take upon himself the form of a man and walk in simplicity and come and live the life of a servant to set us free, to seek and to save those of us that are lost. And Father, we are all lost. Without you, we have no hope. We are dead in sins and trespasses. But Father, we rejoice and we are so thrilled. Father, we are so grateful this morning 
that even though we were dead in sins and trespasses, walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience, we were all by nature destined for your wrath, but you, but God. Because of his great love, because of your great love with which you loved us, and the mercy which you showed us, you have made us alive. You have set us free. Father, we thank you for the fact that you have opened our eyes to the heavenly glories and the wonders of who Jesus is, the thrill of what it is to live a life forgiven of sin, the thrill of what it is to life, live a life with a right mind, clothed and restored. Father, we ask you this morning that you would help us, that you would do a work in us. Father, that our lives would be lived in a way that is pleasing to you. Father, Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5 are such a great rebuke and such a great challenge. Whether home or absent, his ambition was to please you in everything. Father, we ask you this morning that you would work in our hearts, that we would be like this man who, even though he wanted to stay with Jesus, wanted to please the Lord and went out and told everybody what great work the Lord had done in him. Father, we pray that you would put within us that drive to please you and to go out and tell others about the great work that you have done in each of us. Father, we thank you that we no longer live dead in sins and trespasses, but we live as new creatures in Christ, made alive by the glory of who you are. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you, O God, for your mercy. And Father, we plead with you for help. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.